0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, Well, go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 10, but I want us to uh, read a section from chapter 8 tonight, which is relevant to what we're going to look at. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4, Paul wrote there, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords... Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. That passage, by the way, is going to be very important as we come to the text tonight in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, the apostle says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the body or the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, literally one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord in the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? As we uh, come to this section in 1 Corinthians 10, we are coming to basically the conclusion of Paul's first argument, which goes back to chapter 8 and verse 1. And at this point, what Paul is going to do is he sort of wraps up the argument is Paul is going to call the Corinthians to exercise exclusive loyalty to Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't sound like anything extraordinary to us. But you have to realize that the Corinthians came from a culture where there really was no such thing as exclusive loyalty to any one god or religion. They were not accustomed to that kind of loyalty because, first of all, the Greco-Roman world in which they lived was pluralistic. Many gods, as Paul references in in chapter 8, many lords, many religions, and from a Roman perspective, they're all equal. That is pluralism, the idea that all religions are equally valid, all religions are equally true. They also came not only from a pluralistic society, but they also came from a syncretistic society. So syncretism is where you take two different religious perspectives and you blend them together, okay, syncretism. And syncretism, of course, exists all over. Um, It existed in the Old Testament. This was one of the things that the northern kingdom actually fell into after the kingdom divided, and uh, you will remember that the northern kingdom actually starts to blend Yahweh worship with the worship of surrounding pagan nations. right? You still have the same thing today. So, for instance, if you went to uh, the Caribbean, you would find a strong Roman Catholic influence, but you would also find uh, um, native voodoo religions, and uh, Catholicism and voodoo religions are brought together, and they actually call it Santeria. Uh, It's taking two things, bringing them together this was really common for the Roman world. It was uh, incredibly common. So, I mean, it would, it would sort of look like this. So, you know, here Arnie is, and let's say, you know, Arnie's a Mormon, and, and then Vic, and Vic's a, um, you know, a Raftiferian or whatever they call him. And um, they, they smoke dope. And um, <laughs> it's very hard to imagine this. But anyway, you know, so on, on Monday, I go and hang out with Vic and go to his thing. And then Tuesday, I go and hang out with Arnie and go to his thing. And then Arnie and Vic and I all go and hang out and, you know, go to Nathan's thing. And and it's just, it's all good because it's all really basically the same. You have to understand that, that what we encounter today, that what we call sort of liberalism that all roads lead to God, all roads are equally valid, all religions are equally valid. There's nothing new about that. That is old. And so the Corinthians live in this culture of pluralism and syncretism. They they lived in a culture where, where politeness in religion was expected. You didn't criticize other people's religion in their world. Um, Also in the Corinthian world, um, one of the reasons why everybody could sort of cross over lines very easily is because there really was no such thing as doctrinal convictions, let alone doctrinal clarity, of any of these religions, okay? It was sort of a smorgasbord approach. There was no doctrinal clarity or theological conviction, and so it allowed sort of a fluidity between the religions and so th- that background actually sort of helps us understand why the corinthians may not have seen going to idol temples and eating idol meat was really that big of a deal you know it sort of brings up the the fact that that <laughs> when 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 people are in the world, they have a worldly worldview, right? This is the way that they look at the world is from their unregenerate, unconverted, basic assumptions about life and God and self and morality and all of that, and this is the worldview that they have, and then when a person comes to faith in Christ, God turns the light on But it's not as if everything from the old worldview just disappears. Did you notice this when you were converted? The ways of thinking don't just become now radically revolutionized so that now I just think Christianly. This is why we're exhorted to have our minds renewed because we're too easily conformed and reconformed back to a worldly worldview. And so you could imagine sometimes, I mean, it's just just a fact, is that sometimes when people come into God's kingdom, they don't always connect all the dots like they should. We should be a little patient with people. Things that seem not only second nature but first nature to us now are not necessarily so for everybody professing Christ. So this this Corinthian assembly is confused. Add to that their arrogance. Add to that their their own sense of spiritual elitism. Add to that their own sense of super-spirituality and you have a real disaster. And so what Paul's going to drive at in this paragraph is, Paul's going to drive at the, that, that such fluidity, right? Go over here, have a little prime rib that had been offered up to uh, Isis or Diana, no big deal, sitting here hanging out in the temple, you know, and there's all this other stuff going on. Paul's going to say that kind of fluidity is, is, is just unacceptable. There is, there is a um, very clear emphasis in this paragraph that that kind of fluidity is idolatry. Okay? Now, we should be patient with people, but idolatry is still idolatry, and it needs to be identified. Identified. And that is exactly what Paul does. He basically is going to say that that it is absolutely antithetical to be a true follower of Jesus and yet hang out in pagan temples. These things are mutually exclusive. And so to be a true follower of Jesus actually means I flee from idolatry. Now, Paul is going to, in a sense, sort of revisit part of the argument. The reason we read 8, 4 to 6 is because Paul's going to take that section that we read, and he's going to sharpen the focus of what he had said. Because if you just take uh, chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, just by itself, apart from what he says later, then the only conclusion that you have is this, that there's There's only one true and living God, and that's obviously true, and there is nothing to an idol, and in a real sense, that's true too, but that's not all of the story. There's more to the picture. Paul doesn't say everything there is to say about it in chapter 8. He fills in some perspective in chapter 10 so that we're supposed to understand what he says earlier by what he says later. And so, Paul is going to make an argument for the Corinthians, where he's going to urge them, command them to flee away from idolatry, and then he's going to use the Lord's Supper and Old Testament worship to buttress his argument as to why you can't have fellowship in pagan temples and be a follower of Christ, both, and then he's going to wrap it up with some, some pretty strong stuff. And so... Verse 14 is, um, is the beginning of the conclusion of the argument. It's a very strong inferential conjunction here. Um, it is um, drawing everything that he said from one up to this present time. He's now drawing with this incredible force, and he's going to present this argument to its conclusion, and he's making a really strong appeal, notice it's a tender appeal, and he's going to make a really strong prohibition. So Gordon Fee says he now concludes with both a tender appeal, my dear friends, and a straightforward prohibition, flee from idolatry. So you you see verse 14, and Paul says to the Corinthians, my beloved, my loved ones. Some I think the NIV maybe does like dear friends, something like that. Anybody have the NIV? Can anybody vouch for that? Dear friends? Yeah. See, that is, okay, that's just, that's a, a little weak, right? Like beloved, dear friends. Um, I guess you could say dear friends in a way that sort of is dripping with sentimentality. But beloved is just, You know, and of course, I have my own hang-ups about the word beloved. But anyway, Paul is using a term of endearment here for the Corinthians. And I think it's really important just to stop and to think, here are these Corinthians who have been nothing but a pain in Paul's neck, right? These people are difficult. They're proud, they are elitist, they are self-willed, and yet Paul still has a genuine love for them. They are his loved ones. And so he says to them, therefore, so you could really underline bold, therefore, my beloved fleet. From idolatry. This is is now the application of everything that's gone before. In fact, if you think back to verse 13, which we spent a few weeks on, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved. Flee from idolatry. That's how you read it. Okay? It goes together. Now, Paul has already commanded them to flee from something else earlier in the letter. Anybody remember? What's that, Matt? Yeah, flee immorality, right? Flee porneia. Now, it's the same word that's used here that's used in 618 but what's interesting is that there's a there's this little prepositional phrase that's not in 618 so the idea is to flee away from so there's this there's this idea of 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 conscientious intentional separation okay. so this fleeing is of course part of what it is to um, escape the temptation, Uh, but notice it is flee away from idolatry. David Garland says, this is really good, he says, idolatry is like radioactive waste. It requires them to bolt from this area immediately to avoid contamination and certain death. So that's that's the force of it. It's also a present imperative, present tense imperative. So not only a command, but it is a command that is to be obeyed habitually. It is to be a characteristic. We should be characterized as those who are fleeing from idolatry. Anywhere we see it in our lives, anywhere we see it in our hearts, there is to be a sense in which, you know, you, <clears throat> you get that the, the radioactive warning sign, right? And you see that and you just, you're supposed to go the other way as fast as possible. There's this battle that is continually to be fought. Now, for sure... Here, idolatry refers specifically to eating idol meat in idol temples, right? But that is not overly relevant to us today, right? Anybody like, say, oh, look at." That temple to Zeus has the best filet mignon. I know that it's part of what's been offered, but, and I know what's going on next door, but <laughs> it's okay. So n- that None of us have, have that temptation, but that doesn't mean that idolatry isn't applicable to all of us, right? Because an idol is anything that we elevate in our hearts that we love in a way that we gladly render our obedience to it. Idolatry is anything that that demands of us primary love and that we give it. So idolatry can be all kinds of things. Idolatry doesn't have to be uh, little statues of wood or or, or, metal. It, it can be a person. It can be a thing. It can be a hobby. Basically, anything in this life can be raised to idol status, right? And if we're honest, we begin to realize that the war that I fight every day is not only the fight of faith, but It is the fight of, who's going to be my God? Is the Lord going to be my God? Or will my lusts be my God? Or will my children be my God? Or will my career be my God? This is the battle that we all have, day in and day out. And so Paul says, This is is what is to characterize you. You are to flee from idolatry. Plain and simple. Now, going back to the chapter 8, 4 to 6, we know that there's only one God, right? And that there's nothing to an idol. That does not mean that an idol isn't dangerous. When when Paul says there's nothing to an idol, he's he's only making part of the point there. We'll see this a little more clearly as as we proceed through the text, but you have to understand that It could be the Corinthian slogan that there's nothing to idols. There's an element of truth to that. Okay? So you walk into a certain kind of worship place and you see statues and you see people uh, kneeling in front of them. Okay? So on the one hand, there's nothing to the statue. There's, there, there is nothing inherent of divinity in the idol itself. Okay? But that doesn't mean then... So it's okay to have idols because they don't really mean anything. It, it doesn't work that way. So you can't say, um, well, I know that... Um, I know that my, my girlfriend is sort of like an idol, but, I mean, there's only one God after all. And so, I mean, it's not like I really worship her. And Paul's like, no, listen, flee. You see an idol in your life, you flee. Then he's going to give this argument, fascinating argument from the Lord's Supper, from Old Testament worship. Absolutely fascinating. So, verse 15. So, (laughs) I love Paul. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. All right, so. um, Paul could be doing a few different things here. Let's be honest. Paul could be speaking with irony, right? You Corinthians think you're so wise. I'm speaking to wise men, right? There's this like irony. Paul could be just flat out sarcastic. In fact, I love this. This is just wonderfully crafted. Paul could be, this is one commentator, sardonically saluting their favorite self-description. <laughs> That's a great sentence, right? Just so sardonically, so cynically. Paul's just cynically saluting, right, their favorite self-description. We're so wise. Okay, so now let me just, let me just tell you, Paul is not above irony or sarcasm. All right? Um, every once in a while, I'll have somebody boast, we, are, we never use sarcasm as humor in our home. And I'm thinking, you are missing out. <laughs> <laughs> sarcasm is some of, the, some of the best humor. And in fact, it's in the Bible. And sarcasm actually can be funny, and it can make a point, and that might be what Paul's doing, and by the way, you could go through and see lots of places where Paul's sarcasm is a little humorous and cutting, right? So, Paul uses irony, Paul uses sarcasm, but there is, there is this remote possibility that Paul could be simply being nice and affirming their basic ability to understand that which is plain. Okay? This would be the use of tact. All right? Now, we can't make too much of it because we don't know for sure, but if Paul if Paul at this point is bringing his argument to a conclusion and he really wants to convince the Corinthians, he he wants them to understand, he wants to draw them in to what he's trying to teach them about loyalty, supreme loyalty to Christ, I think that there's just a, a pretty good chance that Paul is just being tactful here and affirming what he really hopes is true. About the Corinthians okay. um, that 's good for some of us to hear okay. if that is indeed what Paul is doing and, and, and I, I think it probably is there 's a sense where he 's just sort of tactfully trying to affirm them and and, and, and carry the argument, basically saying you guys you guys are wise, you have understanding." I'm going to present what I have to say to you. You judge what I say. Now, the reason why, if Paul's being nice here and and affirming that it's important for some of us to hear, it's because for some of us, it's easy to be sarcastic. Like, all the time. Not like all the time, all the time, but pretty much all the time. It's pretty easy for some of us to be continually speaking in ironies. And sometimes, in fact, probably more often than we want to admit, it's probably good just to use some fundamental kind affirmation. Try it. Sometimes, if we're always using sarcasm or irony, criticism, people don't listen to us, right? Sometimes actually just being kind and affirming and letting them know that, that you, you, in fact, do think they have a brain and know how to use it may get you a little farther in the argument. All right. Then he says, you judge what I assert or you judge what I say. Uh, be perceptive enough to discern the truth in what I'm saying. Now, now Paul is not saying by any stretch well, you judge the truth for yourself, whether I'm right or wrong. Okay. This is not Paul, in a sense, sort of offering up his, uh, his version of truth, saying, okay, now you guys now get to decide, but what he's doing is he's making an argument, and he's just going to believe the best about the Corinthians, that they're going to have enough sense to see what he's saying. Verses 16 and 17 bring us to this uh, section on the Lord's Supper. Now the the, the language here is really magnificent. Okay? Uh, he, he says in verse 16, is not, so this is what he's saying and wanting them to actually follow the argument and to see it for themselves. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a koinonia in the blood of Christ. Okay. Now, the reason I say koinonia, a New American Standard says a sharing, I'm sure others may, a participation or something like that. Um, the word koinonia, of course, is one of those significant New Testament words that end up picking up a tremendous amount of import for us as Christians, right? So, koinonia, of course, means... Um, set up the tables and put out the crock pots. Yes or no? <laughs> That's a safe answer. It's a trick question, by the way. Koinonia is often associated with food for a reason, okay? Now, you know, of course, you know, Baptist koinonia is coffee and donuts, but we're talking about real food, like meatballs, all right? And so he says, we have koinonia in the blood of Christ, Interesting phrase, right? We have fellowship in the blood of Christ. We have a a partnership and a participation in the blood of Christ. Now, here's, here's the amazing thing about verses 16 and 17, is that you end up having some profound statements about the Lord's Supper, But keep in mind, this section is not about the Lord's Supper. What Paul does is he takes the Lord's Supper and puts it into service in order to make his ethical point. By the way, Paul does this a lot. So... For instance, one of the greatest passages on the person of Christ is Philippians 2, 5 through 11, called the Kenosis passage. That that majestic Christological passage is actually put into service for what? For ethics, for the people of God, so that we would not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but we would put the interest of others ahead of ourselves, and that we would have this mind in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So in other words, Paul takes incredibly lofty, magnificent, weighty truth, and that may not even be the focus, but he just uses it to prove a point. That's what he's doing here. So what I want to say is, There is a tremendous amount of truth, beautiful truth, about the Lord's Supper in this passage, but this passage is not primarily about the Lord's Supper, so the conclusion is this passage doesn't tell us everything there is to say about the Lord's Supper, so we have to be a little cautious, okay? We can learn a lot, but not everything, right? So... Notice the interesting thing in 1617 is not the cup of blessing which we bless, a sharing in the blood of Christ, is not the bread which we break. What what, what do you notice about that? The order is reversed. You know, every time in the New Testament, except for here, it's the bread, then the cup, the body, then the blood. But here it's not, it is, it is reversed, and I would suggest to you that the reversal actually, again, is just employed by Paul because what he wants to end up emphasizing is the fact of the unity of the body, that's best pictured by the bread instead of the cup. So you do the cup first, then the bread, the bread drives home the point of the unity of the body, which he's able then to emphasize more. Now, notice the way that he says this, the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not koinonia with the blood of Christ? Now, by the way, when he says, is it not koinonia with the blood of Christ, he is expecting a positive answer. Yes, it is. Cup of blessing. The cup of blessing is actually a technical term for the fourth cup in the Passover observance. It was that fourth cup which our Lord took on the night in which he was betrayed and gave thanks, blessed it, and then said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. So so very early, um, so our Lord Jesus observes the Passover, follows the Passover liturgy, that fourth cup, the cup of blessing, becomes then for Christians, that cup of blessing which now represents the new covenant in his blood, all right? So, the cup of blessing which we bless, our Lord Jesus blessed that cup on the night in which he was betrayed, and then in early, the earliest of Christian tradition, the cup of blessing was then offered up, as it were, and given thanks for that cup. And that's the picture that Paul's presenting here. The, the cup of blessing with which we bless. Okay? With which we give thanks. With which we give praise. Is that not... Okay, so We do it a little differently than the early church, right? So, we don't have a common cup, for instance out of curiosity, how many of you are actually glad you don't have a common cup, right? Okay, so um, I was in Sweden one time, and we had a communion service, and they had a common cup, and they passed the cup, and then they passed a napkin. And the person drank it, and then wiped it, and then turned it. And I'm thinking, you just wiped the germs right where I'm about to drink. But anyway, so... So I'm I'm totally fine with little plastic cups, all right? But here's the thing, is that after all of us are served, then one of the men gives thanks for that cup, right? Paul says, is that not koinonia with the blood of Christ? Christ. Now, we're gonna, we'll, we'll go into this a little later and, and do some stuff on the Lord's Supper when we get to 1 Corinthians 11. But I think that the idea, Gordon Fee puts it like this, I think this is good. knee with the blood of Christ is a celebration of common life in Christ based on the new covenant in his blood that had previously bound them together in union with Christ by his Spirit. And so the koinonia that we have in the blood of Christ is actually the bonds that we share because of the sacrifice of Christ. The union that we have not only with Christ, but with each other. By the way, it is absolutely significant that when we serve the Lord's Supper, we don't have somebody standing up front and you come up and, and I give you something and I dispense it to everybody that comes up, okay? You take it and you hand it to the person next to you. And you say, well, what else am I supposed to do with it? But you understand the symbolism of handing the cup to the person next to you is indicating that we are both participants in the sacrifice of Christ, and he has made us one in him. Right? It's, there's not a whole lot around here that's just done on accident. There's, there's a reason why we don't have little tables over in the corners with bread and juice on them so that you can come in and just go and do communion whenever you feel like it. By the way, I've been to two churches that, that do that. Okay? The Lord's Supper is never an individualistic ordinance it is always a body ordinance always it is koinonia with the blood of christ which has both vertical and horizontal implications so this is why this is why we don't do communion at weddings you might just think oh you know, just uh, you're, you're too persnickety And the answer. No, communion is only for when you come together as the church. So unless you want to just serve communion to everybody at a wedding, which I would suggest would be a very bad idea, okay? this is why if we visit the sick, I don't take a little communion kit and serve them private communion. Why? Because it would be, that would be a violation of two different principles. The first would be, it's no longer a body ordinance, it's an individual thing. Then, also, once you make it an individual thing, that a person needs to get on their, uh, get, at their deathbed, do you know what you've now just done to the supper? You've elevated it to a sacramental status, which it does not have. Does that make sense? So, body, koinonia, blood of Christ, bound together, new covenant, fellowship. So we're sharing in the blessings, the benefits of the new covenant and Christ's sacrifice. And so I kind of feel like I'm already doing the communion stuff now, but this is so good, right? And we're going to have communion this coming Sunday. So when you drink the cup, do you understand that when you drink the cup, what you're doing is you're drinking by faith. You are drinking and eating spiritually on Christ by faith, that's the way our confession puts it, in such a way that what is what what's happening by by drinking, I'm drinking, I'm taking the juice and I'm swallowing it, it's becoming a part of me. I am appropriating the very symbol of Christ's sacrifice, saying that I am a beneficiary of what Jesus did on the cross. Then he says, and the loaf which we break, is it not? Yes, it is. Koinonia with the body of Christ, the loaf which we break. Now, Paul's going to draw significance from this, right? From the one loaf. And so the body of Christ is given for us in sacrifice. Now, by the way, he says when we break it, remember... Jesus, none of Jesus' bones were broken. So the idea of his body being broken is the idea of, of his body being given up in sacrifice on our behalf. Okay. So the bread symbolizes what is done to our Lord's body so that now we are sharers of that one loaf, which means we are sharers in the death of Christ on our behalf. In, in some sense, I, I think both the bread and the cup have both vertical and horizontal implications, but the, 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 the cup has more distinct vertical implications, okay, of me being reconciled to God, my sins being forgiven. The, the bread has more radical horizontal implications so that you have that one loaf and then you get it and it's broken up into all of these pieces. So the many actually are the one that's supposed to symbolize what the body of Christ is. And you notice all the pieces look the same. Nobody goes digging through going, is there a corner piece? Is there some with Cinnamon? It's all the same. Why? Because we're one body. Regardless of what you look like, regardless of Jew, Gentile, bond or free, male, female, all one in Christ. And at the foot of the cross, all of us stand on absolutely equal Ground. When I pass that bread, in a sense, what I'm saying is I belong to you, you belong to me. We are of one body, one love. Paul says then in verse 17, this is also just really interesting. He says, since there is one loaf, we who are the many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And so there's this sort of this interesting little chiastic thing here. So because there's one loaf, in indent, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. In other words, we're bound together through Christ. We're fellow participants, fellow sharers of Christ and of each other. And in fact, there is supposed to be a solidarity that's expressed by the bread and a fellowship of the deepest bonds. I mean, here's, here's, here's the wonderful thing about what communion is, is representative of. So communion is multidimensional in, its, in, in, in what it represents for us, but that, that sense of, of one loaf, one body has this idea where where we have fellowship of the deepest bonds because of Christ. So, I have a deeper bond with somebody who is in Christ than I have with my own flesh and blood who's not in Christ. Now, Praise God that some of our flesh and blood is in Christ and then we have a double bond. But the bond in Christ is always, it is always deeper and always more profound because it will be eternal. And there is this profound sense where where here we are and there is a solidarity that is manifested because of what Christ has done for us. So... Sociologists will tell you that one of the most racially divided places in the United States is in our prisons. And yet, week after week, month after month, and year after year, Walk in and you see white guys, and black guys, and Mexicans, and Indians, and Asians. And all of a sudden, all of that doesn't matter. In the place where it matters the most, inside the walls of, of Christ's sanctuary with his People, those things don't matter. It's glorious. It's glorious. And by the way, it's not, that's, that's not um, sort of this phony, superficial, um, like social justice wow wow stuff it is actually real it's not just fabricated because of political correctness it's real because of christ and so paul says here we are and there's solidarity so so you you have Fellowship with the blood of Christ and fellowship in the body of Christ. And it is what joins us together. And so the Lord's Supper is really a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb. When one of these days, sin and the curse will be no more. All the, all the old things of the first creation will be a thing of the past. All things will be made new. And we will live in perfect harmony and fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and with one another forever and ever. What is an imperfect glimpse as we partake of the bread and the cup? Will one of these days be consummated in such a way that the ransomed church of God will be saved to sin no more. So did the Corinthians take the Lord's Supper? Yes. We're going to see in the next chapter, they didn't do it very well. They could use some improvements on, on, on how they observed the supper. All right? But here they are. So, Paul, so Paul's thing, so f- follow the argument. So flee idolatry. Okay flee idolatry, we participate when we eat and drink. That's, that's the connection. We participate when we eat and drink in the body and blood with one another, so we're a part of God and we're a part of each other. Eating and drinking is symbol, symbolic of that. Okay, I think that's going to have any implication for what happens. In terms of idle meat in idle temples, you better believe it. So then Paul says, verse 18, he says, Look at literally Israel according to the flesh. Does the, does the ESV do that? What, how does the ESV do it? Does it say the nation Israel? Is the nation Israel? So ESV, a nation Israel. Anybody? So it, literally, it's Israel according to the flesh. So, look at Israel according to the flesh. Are not those who eat the sacrifices, sharers in the altar? So, Paul could just be saying, look at historical Israel. Or he could be saying, look at fleshly or sinful Israel, as pictured in chapter 10. It all depends on what Paul's doing in verse 18. So, if he's simply using Old Testament Israel's sacrifice as a further argument, then he's probably just talking about, look at historical Israel. Um, if he's speaking about sinful Israel, he's probably transitioning to idolatry, um, to the idolatry. But I I take this to be actually just sort of straightforward, and that is he he uses the supper as as part of his argument. Now he moves to historical Israel and the sacrifices that they would have offered on the altar. And so then he, he makes this question. He says, are not those eating the sacrifices partakers of the altar? So it seems to me that Israel according to the flesh is not a negative term here, but just simply speaking about historical Israel. And it also seems that he's not really talking about Israel's sin or Israel's idolatry, but just the idea of what happened when the priests offered sacrifices on the altar. So the priests were allowed to do what? eat a portion of that which was to be sacrificed, okay? So they ate that which was, part of that which was sacrificed. That sacrifice was then offered up on the altar. Altar, symbolic really of Israel's larger worship, not just the place where they're sacrificed. And Paul's point is really simple. So the priests who did that, partook of the food, offered the sacrifice, they are partners, sharers in the altar. That is, they actually enter into the worship of God in a way that is really unique. Now, both of these arguments, both of these arguments are designed to help the Corinthians to see that it is no small thing to eat that which has been offered up to an idol in an idol temple. So verses 19 to 22, which we have like four minutes to do this. What do I mean then? (laughs) I I love the way Paul actually is just so realistic. So he's making this argument. What 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 do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? And so what do you think the implied answer is? Is, is the food anything in and of itself? Is an idol anything in and of itself? The answer is no, it's, it's nothing in and of itself. But there's more to it than that. Notice what he says here. He says... Verse 20, no, but I say, so idle meat is, it's no different than any other meat when you boil it all down, right? You look at I mean, it doesn't change. You look at the idol. there's nothing behind it. But, but I want to tell you, Paul says, verse 20, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. And not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Oh, you better read eight, four to six in light of this. It is it is not irrelevant even though there's nothing behind the idol that is, let's say, true deity, there is something going on. There is a reality behind the idols, and what is sacrificed in those temples is sacrificed not to gods because there are no other gods than the one true and living God, but they are sacrificed to demons. In other words, there's a spiritual reality behind the idols. So, when that person kneels before that statue of the virgin and venerates, okay, in one sense you go, there's nothing to it but plaster of Paris. And in another sense you go, there's a spiritual reality behind it though And the spiritual reality is not divine mother of God. Spiritual reality is powers of darkness. Okay? So, Paul turns around and 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 this ends up being the focus of his argument. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. Oh, now you know what? He uses koinonia here. I don't want you to be sharers with demons. So now the now the argument comes right into focus. By the way, this is, this is an allusion to Deuteronomy 32, 17. So here's his point you can't go into the temples, eat meat sacrificed to idols, and then not become a fellowshipper and a participant in something, and that something's demonic. So Old Testament monotheism was very clear. There's only one true and living God. Also, the idols, they have eyes but cannot see, ears, Psalm 115, 135, right? They have hands but they can't do anything. They have feet but they can't walk, right? And those who worship them become just like them. But it's also clear that there's demonic powers, so that the gods are not true gods, but they are actually demonic powers. And Paul's simply saying, You're doing this, and what you're doing is when you engage in that meal. So notice the parallel. When you engage in that meal, you are associating with and participating in the demonic just as sure as when you take the bread and the cup, you participate in the body and blood of Christ with one another, so you're doing the same thing when you go to the temples. It's a powerful argument. Garland says, they may think that they are simply joining a festive party. But in reality, they're joining a party infested by Satan and forming an alliance with those who crucified the Son of God. They cannot dismiss these meals as a simply casual, meaningless, social repast any more than they can dismiss a sexual relationship with a prostitute as a casual, meaningless tryst. Verse 21, notice, You cannot, the Greek text is emphatic, you are not able to drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You are not able to partake, to partner in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Verse 21, by the way, this is, this is the coup de grace of his argument, right? And that is, listen, mutually exclusive realities here. You are not able to partake both of drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You are not able. You are not able to partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Absolutely mutually exclusive In other words, syncretism is a lie. Christ alone is Lord of all. So this is a warning. It's a prohibition. He says... One is not merely eating with friends at the pagan temple. One is engaged in idolatry. Idolatry that involves association with demons. This needs to wake us up. He concludes with two rhetorical questions. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he are we? So the two questions, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy, should expect a negative answer, like, no, don't do that. Right. By the way, this comes from Deuteronomy 32, 21. Don't provoke the Lord to jealousy, real clear, real simple in a sense. As as Paul wraps this up, what he's saying is is, is this, is that God himself demands that he be without rival. God himself demands that those who name his name not have divided devotion. God is a jealous God And he's righteous in that jealousy. Okay? God demands worship of him and him alone. And he's jealous for that because of the infinite value of His own glory. If God were not infinitely glorious, then His jealousy would be unrighteous. But because He is infinitely glorious, His jealousy is absolutely righteous. If God were not to be a jealous God, let me, let me just, just illustrate it this way. So if you have a husband and a wife, and the husband sees his wife going and hanging out with Other men and then going off with other men and has no sense of jealousy, it's because he has no sense of what is owed to him in the marriage covenant. What is owed to him in the marriage covenant is fidelity, faithfulness. When that which is properly owed is not rendered, jealousy is righteous. God says the same thing, but to the nth degree. So what Paul's saying then is this. If you go and you try to drink the cup of demons and eat at the table of demons, what you're doing is you are provoking the Lord to jealousy. To divide loyalties to the living God is a provocation of his anger. And then this last question, we're not stronger than he, are we? What do you think the answer to that is? I think a kindergartner could get this one, right? Are you stronger than God? The answer should be no. What's the point of the question then? Such practice is a challenge to God. In a sense, defying him is daring him to act. My dad was an incredibly patient father. Incredibly patient. But you knew that if you crossed a certain line, the response would be firm and swift. how much more the god of heaven Are we stronger than he is no absolutely not but it's absolute folly to act as if you can do your own thing and god's not going to do anything about it you're acting like you're stronger than he is and it is not true and job 9 So, who has defied him without harm? Powerful passage. Paul wants these Corinthians to understand that loyalty to Christ is an exclusive loyalty. So you flee idolatry because you cannot be co-equally aligned with Christ and demons. So, brothers and sisters, flee idolatry. Flee idolatry. There is no sense in provoking a holy and just God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage, and we pray that we take it to heart. We pray that you would sanctify us through your truth. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to see and understand where our idols are, and then you'd help us to separate from them. We pray that you would give us a a relish for participating and sharing in the body and the blood of our Savior with one another. We pray that it would be so precious to us that we would value it above all else. Thank you again for this text. We pray for loved ones, Lord, who, who really are ensnared in idolatry we pray that you would deliver them that the sun would set them free and that they would be free indeed in Jesus name amen we hope that you were edified by this message for additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of grace community church please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.